0: What's up everyone? Welcome to Destination Radio with me, Ciarán Smith. Today I've taken on the small task of trying to host an episode on probably Wales's most famous uh, writer, probably is the, you know, Wales' biggest export, internationally famous, internationally renowned, probably actually one of the most famous writers in the English language, period. Of course, I'm talking about Carwin Jones, uh, sorry, no, Dylan Thomas, <laughs> and I'm joined by two, let's say, Thomas experts. I've got uh, Dr. Rian Barfoot, whose 2014 book Liberating Dylan Thomas explored some of Thomas, the sort of, um, this, well, the psychosexual elements of his writing, would you say, Rian?
1: Well, it exploded some of the psychosexual elements of his writing and in favour of the psycholinguistic elements of his writing. Yeah, that's a decent yeah.
0: summary. Okay, yeah. good, good. And also a friend of the podcast, Dr Reese Trimble, avant-garde Welshman and um, General Polly Math. How's it going, Reese? All right. Yo, how's it going? I'm pretty good. I'm good. So I'm really, I was really looking forward to doing this episode, actually, and um, talking to you both about Thomas, because I know you both... You know his work inside out, and I know you both, um but know some of the limitations of the work and some of the the, uh, the nuances um, that uh, often aren't picked up, I would say, in the general popular discourse around Dylan Thomas. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that, and and kind of what what Thomas signifies um in Wales and beyond, and and why he's such a well massively successful figure, massively popular, but also controversial and divisive in, in, in other ways, so I don't know, maybe we can start, Ryan. if you want to give me a little bit of a, like an overview of his life.
1: Okay, so Thomas was born in Swansea, in the Uplands um son of a schoolmaster who had his own literary aspirations, but didn't get very far. Uh, he failed to get a chair in Aberystwyth University um Dylan Thomas was always set on becoming a poet and very much had his eye on London publication. And he shot to, well, I suppose meteoric rise to fame um, with the publication of his first collection, 18 poems.
0: And most of that had been written while he was a teenager. Most
1: of that was written while he was a teenager. Right. Um. Yeah, and that sort of, you know... It, it was like nothing else that was appearing at the time. And, you know, it it created this myth of him being, you know, this figure, that a Celtic figure that, uh, you know, invested with bardic oil that had arrived out of the mists, you know, like some sort of Merlin-esque type, uh, yeah, mythic character. Yeah, well,
0: is, yeah, I think that's definitely the way he was read and received by yeah. the English literary establishment at the time. But... Does the... It's that interpretation became a, a very powerful one in terms of the way his legacy was sort of set out in um, years afterwards. But did did the poetry itself, did that first collection, 18 poems, actually speak from that Welsh Celtic tradition? No. So why do you think he was interpreted? No, that way?
1: it was. Um, there were few people that recognised that what he was doing really had elements of. Eliot's linguistic experimentation but that he was using it in a kind of traditional verse form so it, it was different to what was going on at the time there were fault lines developing at that time in British poetry between um a belated modernism and the kind of overtly um overtly political and generally left-wing biased poetry propagandist poetry that was appearing at the time, and you had things like um, the pylon poets, the new country poets. It was all very ordon They were very much social markers of electric pylons, planes, that sort of thing. And And Dylan Thomas had nothing of that. There was nothing of that. There were none of those kind of social markers. You know, he had very unpeopled landscapes. He had ghosts. It was very bodily. Mm. you know, you have these unpeopled landscapes that were populated only by ghosts and a single solitary worm, that sort of thing, yeah. you know? it's. Um... I, just, I just remembered
2: that I'm a Dallantol must impersonate stuff. And in that role, I probably understand that reception, like, because, you know, like, in History Boys, where they say something about, like, the playing with language is somehow Welsh or something? Mm-hmm. What if they get that, you know, the linguistic excess... Yeah, like oh, the idea of the Welshman and all that. Sort of. They interpreted like him, you know, in a bardic way. And obviously, I go around waving a stick around. Yeah, and I got like oh, went well, tattooed my hands and everything, so I'm playing up to it. But, like, oh, I didn't I,
1: realize you had uh, went tattooed on your hand. Yeah,
2: look, yeah. Oh. I, I, uh, I play on this very much this thing, and I got I get the same sort of like racist.
1: Do you think uh, it goes back to the whole thing of yeah, in Absal well, with you know the hymn to the Virgin and and all that? You know, where he was sort of really playing with language. Okay, it's amazing. Yeah, that's
2: yeah. like it's like uh, you know, and that was
1: centuries before.
2: That was English in in Welsh.
0: In Canaan,
1: yeah.
2: So it's part. part of <laughs>
0: the, the English. He fits into the the kind of problem of the way that. Uh, the English literary and cultural establishment frame and view the idea of Welshness through this lens of, like, well, anything that goes on that side of offers Dyke comes from this Celtic tradition and that, it, that it's informed by the cadences of the Welsh language. Well, yeah. And that, you know, the, the, I'm not suggesting that's true, but that is part of no, the way that's... that he was framed. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah. You know, the, the English literary establishment think that we've got a big mirror that refracts things on the Seven Bridge. Yeah,
0: there you go. But what's, I mean, I don't want to draw a direct comparison between you, Risa, and Dilla Thomas, but coming from a, a relatively, reasonably similar region of geographical region of the world, but Dilla Thomas, I mean, was his upbringing Welsh then? So he was born in, in Uplands, grew up in Uplands, and left for London when he was about, what, eight, 20, I think, didn't he? Um, was it a Welsh upbringing?
1: No, Welsh wasn't spoken at home. Um, his parents were very much of the generation that viewed the Welsh language as something that you didn't really engage with if you wanted to get on. It was very much in English. It was very much Anglicised. But he was, of course, no poet writes in a vacuum. because of course he was exposed to Welsh culture. And he was, um, you know, he, he had his mother's family were down in Carmarthen, and much more rural part of Wales. So... He was exposed to that, although he wasn't taught Welsh at home um he was very much exposed to the culture of South Wales, you know he certainly wasn't written in a vacuum because you you've got the legacy of you know the Welsh chapel and very much even in English language chapels in Wales nonconformist chapels, you've still got this very much. You've still got the rhetoric, the sort of bardic oil and the rhythms of language. There's very much a stress on that.
2: To begin at the beginning <laughs> You know that painting of the bard or whatever and he's on a mountain, whoever painted that. In it? Mm. Um there's that there's that at um, maybe this this press that uh, or the magazine that uh, published the force that through the green fields or whatever, which started him off. Mm. But then like it's the same now in Swansea, isn't it? Like that there is there's like this Norman hangover and you just don't engage the Welsh language. But and yet yeah. they think that he knew about King Hanath and Welsh trick meter poetry and mm. they look at him and like Barnes and people like that as people who are and Manley Hopkins as somebody who's doing like King Hanath in English and that's where he got Linguistic excess, but maybe he didn't. You know, he got it from different, he got it from like Manly Hopkins, and maybe directly through chapels. and He would have been aware of Welsh language poets, I suppose. Mm. But uh, same as now, really, know. Yeah. Mm.
0: So, what happened after 18 poems? I mean, that basically got him significant fame, um, in you know, in the cultural well, world. Did, what. That was when he. I think that was published when he was eighteen, wasn't it? That, that was published
1: when he was eighteen. So then what there was he do after? There that? was a short gap, and then there was twenty five poems. And part of the problem with there being a short gap, um, because okay. well, about a four year gap between eighteen poems and twenty five poems, um, it was Victor Newberg, that had published his first poem, in Sunday Referee, hmm. um, was that the force that threw was that? Yes, hmm. he'd taken. Up with Alistair Crowley, and he'd become um, a disciple of Crowley's and Crowley... The might... publisher now, not. Yeah, so and Crowley, yeah, yeah, the publisher, Victor Newberg, yeah. And Crowley managed to convince Newberg that he was a sex slave and a camel for four years. So, yeah, there was a bit of a gap with Dylan Thomas's publishing then, and uh, yeah. I didn't know about that, yeah. yeah.
2: I didn't know about that. Was he a sex slave and a camel?
1: Well, he wasn't a camel, obviously. He was still Victor Newberg. It's just that Victor Newberg believed that he was a camel, and he was a sex slave. Yeah. Oh, cool.
2: brilliant. really. A so.
1: contemporary. What's a camel? A camel. You oh. know, a camel with humps. He okay,
2: was a camel, a literal camel.
1: A literal camel, yeah. Ah, oh. yeah. It'd be
2: quite easy to
0: verify, I So while Victor Newberg <laughs> thinks he's a camel. What
1: what does Dylan Thomas think he is at that time? What does Dylan Thomas think he is at that time? Uh, Dylan Thomas is riding on the wings of his fame at that time. Dylan Thomas is just hell-bent on... He's got his eye on London publication, and that's what he sees himself as. He wants to be a poet that's published in London. Ironically, part of the reason that he became so famous was because he wasn't like anything that was coming out of London because he was modernist but he was very belated and it was his position, his non-metropolitan position being in Wales um, that allowed him to have that distance yeah. from the current literary trends which then, and to modulate the earlier period of high modernism and fashion it in his own way. So earlier,
0: let's call it high modernism, comes around, you know, turn of the century, 1910s, 1920s, yeah. where you've got formal... experimentation with form in general yeah. across all of the arts yeah. and literature and trying to... Um, you know, work against the grain of the kind of assumptions that people had about what art and literature was in the yeah. 19th century. And yeah. like modern world and trying to reformulate for artworks that could reflect like that. industrialism and, and the new modern life, right? Yeah, absolutely. But by the 1930s, when Dylan Thomas is a, more, a mature writer, that had become less fashionable? Is That what you that,
1: mean? Had, that had become less fashionable. And were, poets were writing at the time, against the backdrop of the second, you know, the rise of Nazism and the rise of the far-right. And there was a big pushback with left-wing poetry. Poetry became much more political, overtly political. It became very propagandist. So you've got
0: writers writing about the Spanish Civil War. That's and, right, yeah. And what it, literally what is happening in the political yes. um, universe at that yeah, time, I mean. Than
1: Absolutely. And Dylan Thomas, although Dylan Thomas was deeply interested in politics, which is usually negated, you know, people don't usually speak about this. I mean, Dylan Thomas was a member of the Socialist Party. He left in 1934 and joined the Communists. Um, He went in protest to see Mosley speaking when Mosley came to Swansea and he got thrown down the stairs of the plaza. Um, But Dylan Thomas's attitude was that... Political poetry makes neither good propaganda nor good poetry. And he was denounced at the time by what became known as the New Country Poets and the Pylon Poets. Um, or in a very ordinary, conservative way. So, you know, lot, not linguistic experimentation at all. But he was denounced as being as political as a mountain goat.
0: So w- why is that? How How would you describe... Thomas's poetics at that time. And, what you know, why was it such a um, turn against that kind of explicitly political stuff in the 1930s? Like, what characterises his writing in the 1930s?
1: Experimentation at the level of language. Okay. So, Experimentation at the level of the word itself. He was pushing language to see what language could do and pushing it into all different sorts of... You know, he's creating neologisms, creating new words very interested in rhythm, very interested in, in all sorts of poetic technique and linguistic experimentation. That if, was Thomas's thing.
2: What if we get an example of that then? We were talking about the other apocalyptic poets and they're like they share this uh, yeah. this sort of trope of like death and destruction, which is like indirectly talking about politics, isn't it? Like Absolutely. But then yeah, what Ryan says is like, yeah, that he's he's the one who's really got the the late modernist thing going out. And then if you compare that with other things going all the time, it's completely mm. really innovative, but obviously because it's so sheer, for example, where do you you know, where do you get the politics and this, I'm sure Rien will tell us <clears throat> <laughs> Today this insect, today this insect and the world I breathe. Now that my symbols have out elbowed space, time at the city spectacles and half the dear daft time i take to nudge the sentence in trust and tale have i divided sense slapped down the guillotine the blood red double of head and tail made witness to this murder of eden and green genesis the insect certain in the plague of fables this story's monster has a serpent call, blind in the coil, scrams around the blazing outline, measures his own length on the garden wall, and breaks his shell in the last shocking beginning, a crocodile before the chrysalis. Before the fall from love, the flying heartbone, winged like a Sabbath ass, this children's piece uncredited, blows Jericho on Eden. The insect fable is the certain promise. Death, death of Hamlet and the nightmare madmen, an air-drawn windmill on a wooden horse. John's beast, Job's patience, and the fibs of vision. Green in the Irish sea, the ageless voice. Adam I love, my madman's love is endless. No tale lover has an end more certain, or legend's sweethearts on a tree of stories. My Cross of Tales Behind the Fabulous Curtain. So well, it's like,
1: very, very, very brilliantly read, though,
2: he's, so, he's so sheer, isn't he? What like, do you mean, sheer? So this is more Rian's theory that is quite impenetrable. It's like, mm-hmm. a, like a sublimity, isn't it? Like yeah. postmodern sublime. This is stuff I'm stealing, me from real, but she's, uh... She's but, like, where do you, you know, and he's also... Yeah, like, well, I mean, the question is, where do you start with
0: that? Where do you start? And where do you start, yeah. It's well,
1: like... it's... The way post-structuralism taught us all, that we, rather than becoming subjects in the world, um, you know, and adults, and members of society, through the very Freudian um, psychosexual stages of development, post-structuralism taught us, which is far more political, that we do that through language. We can become interpolated as subjects within society through the acquisition of language. And because language structures everything that we do, and identity, and all the different habits... And the balance of power is held by the structures of language within a society. So, at the very root, Dylan Thomas, you might say, anticipated, you know, three decades before the language poets in in America, what the language poets would do, because they're challenging the very roots of language. And by challenging the very roots of language, how we acquire identity, and then also because... You know, Dylan Thompson's poetry doesn't make sense in a linear way. Hmm. It doesn't make, there is no cognitive determinacy. You know, you one pick, you read against so the if thread. if you're trying to
0: read it for a particular narrative, pers- narrative or perspective. Uh,
1: you're going to be screwed. <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah.
0: Because he's deliberately, what that, that use of language is doing is deliberately playing and drawing attention to the language, language itself.
1: itself language is solid things, language, the materiality of language, language is solid objects, language is words, language is things that can be hewn and cut and shaped, the physicality of language, rather than meaning, you know, Thomas spends meaning, meaning's always deferred, meaning's always suspended in Thomas's writing, which is very much in keeping with Marxist and post-structuralist theory, Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, like the rest of the the apocalyptics in this anthology, have got you know, they you know they evoke this sort of like gothic uh, imagery, don't they? Which is obviously something to do with dissatisfaction, the, the political climate. But they they've always got these familiar sort of ways of of saying things, like in some sort of narrative. Just bringing up skulls and crucifixes and stuff, but he's going, like, a step beyond that. Mm. He's, like, making language into this, like, impenetrable object, just like a series of signifiers that just batter you, and it becomes, like, a sculpture or something. Yeah,
1: yeah, he defamiliarizes language. He makes... he, He challenges all our assumptions about language, and sort of even to the point of... Like, Thomas's locus poetic, the political landscape in Thomas... Is often intrauterine, uterine, you know it's often the embryo we speak in, so the embryo becomes the lyric eye, you know so you've got you got a fetus that's the that's the, the, the lyric eye in lots and lots of his poems, you know, and these fetuses float around having these metaphysical issues we've inside got a, the womb we've and got a
2: fetus uh, glove puppet yeah. Um. <laughs> My part will be spoken by that.
1: Okay. Very good, very good.
0: Hello. How does it feel to speak? I mean, I of like the tone of voice. Just to watch it. It,
2: pitched.
1: it could be very deep. Hello. <laughs> no,
0: no.
2: no,
1: yeah. Test mm. to watch it doesn't get tongue tied with a with an umbilical cord. Oh, it's a set Yeah. Yeah.
2: Lost the audience, I Talking about losing
0: the audience. So, that, he's writing that kind of stuff in the 1930s, yeah. right? Um, that is not, I I would suggest, accessible. These are not accessible themes. These are not themes for necessarily wide audiences, no. is, is one argument, isn't it? Is yeah. that, that's very arcane stuff. Yet, by the end of the 30s, okay, he goes to London, he lands a job working for... Um, one of the documentary film units producing documentary, uh, producing propaganda documentaries for the, as part of the British documentary yeah. movement. And sort of makes a bit of money, pop oil and doing that for a few years during the war. And then, um, you know, I suppose later 40s, early 50s, sinks deeper and deeper into alcoholism and while well, publishing poetry sporadically. Nevertheless, he is still on this meteoric Trajectory where he's doing tours of the of US universities mm. in the early 50s, he's still got wide fame as a, as a poet and a and a cultural figure, despite the inherent complexity of his work. How do you explain that? Like what, what is it about his writing that that offers so much to people I despite don't... being so challenging?
1: I don't know if it's entirely to do with his writing and his later style certainly was more penetrable than the early style. Thomas played very much to the idea of the archetypal bohemian poet. He very much became a signifier of what you'd expect the bohemian poet to be. Right. You know, the wild drinking, womanising... Yeah. I and mean, he played to that, you know. Dylan Thomas, in all ways, linguistically, poetically, um, in his personal life, nationally, in all contexts, Dylan Thomas refuses to be contained. You know, he's born in Wales. He's a Welsh man, writing in English, and writing in a style that's borrowed from English High Modernism, parts of it, but has leanings towards Welsh Canghanna. He destabilises those categories. In literary terms, he desta- he's writing with sort of modernist content, but he's putting it into very specific, conservative verse forms. He played to a London audience, but the way that he was doing that was... Made possible because of his non metropolitan status being born outside London and in Wales. So he destabilises lots and lots of categories and he played to that and he would play to whatever people wanted him to be. You know, he was a trickster, he was a, a piss taker.
2: Like, you know that conference, the Dylan Thomas conference, I sit there and his, and his, gla- his granddaughters there. Good. My grandfather did this and that. She's managed to get some sort of career by sort of... Yeah. Like, uh, whatever. sharing's name. Yeah, going, oh yeah, I'm related to this person. And I thought at the time that he's got this celebrity status which yeah. is completely outside the work. Uh, yeah. The work is really difficult. Like the first one. You know, the force through the green fields drives the flower, drives my own green age, the blast of roots of trees... I am a destroyer I am the dumb to tell The crooky bros You know Quite yeah. Difficult Stuff So he ended up And then How does he end up Like Being like Dillon in the magic Roundabout Basically Yeah you know? How does he get well, To the... there you know And it's like It becomes his cultural force That ended up like Going against His literary Credentials Completely A bit like You know Rage Against the Machine or in the 90s mm-hmm. And they're actually like Quite extreme yeah. political status. You never knew anything about that when you were in school. Yeah. I'm just like jumping up and down and going, oh, I really swear. I was <laughs> yeah. completely ignorant of any sort of politics. Rage against, presumably the, the the name of the band, Rage Against the
0: Machine, is a play on um, Rage Against the, <laughs> of the Light, isn't it? Okay. Against, it? Surely it is. I mean, that's okay. that just occurred to me recently. But anyway, I think, yeah, that that's one of the things that I'm really interested in is is his legacy and the fact that there's there's an industry around Dylan Thomas. It's now, a massive industry. And it is a continuingly popular legacy, right? I mean, Michael Sheen is doing is Under um, Milkwood at the National Theatre in London this year, and it is it was sold out really quickly. Mm. He still sells, you know, thousands of books every year. It's still a phenomenal legacy. And there's still an industry driving that, like you said, like you know the, I mean the the big event was the centenary year twenty fourteen, and you know that was a hundred years after his birth, and there was this whole like carnivalesque kind of like outpouring of um of stuff around Dylan Thomas. Yeah, the that that whole
1: commodification becomes a whole industry, doesn't it?
0: Exactly, and it, and it and it continues <clears throat> now. I mean, I think the I'm not sure exactly who it was that decided to. Um, sort of invent this, but this idea of Dylan Day, isn't it? It's like, a, it's a day in May, and it, it's, I think, what is it, the 18th of May or something? Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's Dylan Day, and Dylan it's meant to, you know, meant, it's, it's this way of trying to, well, <laughs> suck more life out I of him. I think it's really
1: ironic. But it is, it is, isn't it? but there was a
0: lot of conversation around him this year, around Dylan Day, because you have the vested interests in um, in promoting him and using it, using his legacy to reflect <laughs> on their own you know, successes yeah, I mean, like, What do you do
2: on you know, Well, go, you go to la and you get drunk in a shed and cheat on your wife. So, you know, <laughs> you <know? laughs>
1: well, part- right to yeah. few master, not got a few masterpieces at the same time.
0: Yeah, but yeah. what's what's interesting, I think, about um a lot of the more mainstream ways of reading Dylan Thomas is that it 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 the interpretations turn on his lifestyle and on his biography and the and the fact that he was you know, an alcoholic and a trouble a troubled, troubling sort of man, right? And 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 I think a lot of the conversation does still turn on that. I mean there were <clears throat> there, was, there was some conversation on Twitter around Dylan Day this year and some of the stuff I was reading was like, um oh Dylan Thomas was a, a dreadful person. Dreadful. Um like there were like really th- um tenuous kind of anecdotes. Yeah. Uh, Dylan Thomas spat on her old front garden in Skelly Road, something said.
1: Yay, go, <laughs> Dylan! Go on, go
2: <laughs> Dylan Thomas masturbated on my porch <laughs> on the way home <laughs> from the farm. Um,
0: so there's partly that, isn't it? There? There's partly this interpretation yeah. I, of his biography that... I, I, um, you know,
1: there's, there's all these hominem readings of Dylan Thomas that surround him and, you know... Oh, this um—it's the fashion of no? like yeah.
2: provoke people to go after, like the biography of somebody I mean, It's contract time period, isn't it? And, and, yeah, and then you must denounce everything yeah. they've ever written. But then, Donald Thomas—he never did anything that extreme. That he was like profligate, but he wasn't—you know, um, doing anything too bad. It's, well. You know,
1: he's been really commodified. It's, because he's the figure of the you know, there's reasons why he's been commodified, I think, you know, he's he's probably the best... as we already said, he he's the best known writer to have come out of Wales. Um many of his poems became part of common currency twentieth century poetry, and much of his writing are anthology staples. They tend to be from the later period though. Um they tend to be <coughs> He was co-opted into in English, as was R. S. Thomas's early poetry, or, you know, the Yago Brother poems. Because they were poetry of place, you can label them as an Anglo-Welsh poet. Right. Because they write in poetry of place. Dylan Thomas, the early poetry. There are these womb like lands they are womb landscapes. They're they're in neutral landscapes. Um, you know, they're unpeopled. The later poems, you know, you've got over St John's Hill.
0: Yeah. You yeah. got
1: Fernhill. Um so they they're poems that are recognisably of place. They're less dense, they're m- not impenetrable like the early poetry. So it's easier to, for, Welsh written English to claim Dylan Thomas as their own.
0: Well, for me, what I find most interesting about him, besides the work itself, is the way he is such a powerful symbol mm. of the way that culture is commodified in our oh. society, right? Someone who is so popular... Um, in so many for, for for so many different people in so many different ways mm-hmm. that it's almost impossible to read the work um unfiltered sure. so it's very difficult to really understand well what what is there actually a Dylan Thomas beneath all of the the conversation and the discourse around Dylan Thomas because he's been so um flagrantly and um sort of claimed by so many different um agents, right? It's very difficult to get to grips with well, what that he actually does signify and if there is anything real there. Um I think that's a perfect illustration of the way that culture is commodified under well, under capitalism. Absolutely. And the way he is so easily commodifiable because he well, he's able to make different agents money, right? And well, that's partly why he's claimed by so many different people in so yeah. many ways, and why he's so readily promoted, because of his popularity and that, and that's something that was seen in 2014 was this was this crazy um, period where you had um, sort of the Welsh government trying to claim Dylan Thomas as some representative of Welshness and and the and the national community and the national imagination mm-hmm. then you had Swansea Council trying to claim him as representative of the local you know municipal kind of um, um, identity, but then you had other kind of, you had all sorts of different companies and brands trying to use him to sell whatever products were, but, yeah. that, that they could. Absolutely. And I suppose the question is like, well, what yeah, is it possible even to to get to grips with what he, with what he re, is there any essential Dylan Thomas there beneath all of that stuff? Does that make sense? Well,
1: firstly, I think the most end thing that you could say of Dylan Thomas was that he thought about he thought about himself as being multiple selves you know he says this in lots of the letters but you know there's actually that that line from the uh late poem from deaths and entrances from the collection deaths and entrances myself the grievers grieve you know which is incredible when you think about it because you know that was what 50 60 years before people had started using the plural, third-person plural, to identify themselves. Yeah. It's just, you know, I, I don't think... I don't know if there's an essential Dylan Thomas at the heart of all this. Dylan Thomas was open for commodification. But in order to commodify Dylan Thomas, to make him saleable, you know...
0: You have to simplify
1: Well, yeah, you have, to, you have to retail a more uh, easily digestible version of Thomas, and the early poetry certainly isn't easy, and it's not digestible.
0: Well, what, what I'm a simple fan of is the way that certain quotes are attributed to him, yeah. despite him never... Having said something. them. So there's a great one that does the rounds on, online, which is... And the quote is, Life always offers you a second chance. It's called Tomorrow and if you google that you will see like thousands of different like mm. motivational posters with that phrase written on attributed to Dylan Thomas yeah, yeah when, I, when right.
1: I see that when people put that on Facebook I always write under it oh, direct quote after the first death there is no other that <laughs> <laughs> lol
2: yeah. well, exactly yeah. like on the Tinder profile live life love yeah. Yeah. Dylan, Dylan Thomas, Thomas. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> thing though yeah it's to do with like being welsh as well because like at the, at the start he was like deciding that like, to market myself i have to be cut glass as he said as <laughs> whatever. and then do this like weird gravely accent so bbc
1: uh, received pronunciation yeah, yeah. yeah
2: RP, and then he goes and he, he's with the surrealists and then like the f- the fame seems to, like, fracture him away from his work. Mm-hmm. And then he, he writes only very sparingly once, once he did his main body of work, 18 and 25, didn't he? And he was just trying to finish Under milkwood, And in a way, like, the fame sort of split him off from his work, I, th- mm-hmm. I think. And uh, maybe, you know, that he was able to play on the fracturedness that capitalism inflicts on you in a way Mm. Um, but he was yeah he was a mischief maker wasn't he oh
1: very much mischief maker yeah maybe
2: if if you're Welsh you're able to do that because you you know when you go to London there's pressure to like give up your Welshness and you like give it up in a way before you got But yeah but did he I mean the other
0: way of looking at it is that he really played up to his Welshness and that was part of that was an important feature of his fame was the fact that you know if he'd been writing that poetry and had come from Kent or somewhere I mean he wouldn't have had that poetry anyway arguably no. but uh, would he have been received in the same way by the English literary establishment which is presumably uh, to some extent enjoying the I want to say, the colonial aspect of it, the racial aspect. Oh, absolutely. Of constructing me completely bombastic, yeah. lunatic Welshman. Yeah. And I think that's part of Yeah, it's part a
1: stereoty- uh, stereotype in him, you know. But, uh,
0: but it's part of the reason, I think, why there's a lot of resistance to him in Wales and resistance to the idea of claiming him as a Welsh writer mm. is because, A, he was really play- sending up all those clichés about, some of the clichés about Welshness, but also at the same time trying to jetson them in order to become, you know, um, English and middle class and mm. part of the establishment, and, uh, well, or the literary establishment, that is. Yeah. So, what do you think about that? Do you think, it, you know, is, is it wise to claim him as a Welsh writer?
2: I think that that's the one that's most tenuous, really, because, I mean, he did not know that when the Fuse the or whatever was published. That like the linguistic excess was going to be interpreted as Celtic otherness or whatever. Mm -hmm. He didn't necessarily know that. He's already like gone some effort to renounce his Welshness. Yeah. At that at that point, and then he probably went, "All right, brilliant. This is working for me. I'm going to play up for this now, so I've done it myself." But Um, of course,
0: there's some critics that will argue that Welshness was intrinsic to his poetics at that time. mm -hmm. You know, and obviously there's some that would say. That there are others that suggest well, there was nothing Welsh about that. That was just his playfulness with language and, and so on. You know. So, I mean, that just feeds into the the broader argument about the way he's so widely read and so popular, and there are so many interpretations of him now that it's it's difficult to really like cut through it and and it speak is. in an uh, in a way that isn't loaded about Dylan Thomas because it is he is so heavily invested in in lots of ways um, by so many people, you know? And that is one of the things that makes him interesting,
1: I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, he's just a signif- In some ways, you could say that he's an empty signifier that you can just fill with your own meaning. Or, conversely, a signifier that has become written written over and written over and written over and written over and written over. So, you know, what what we've got now is a simulacrum of D- 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 Dylan Thomas, really, because we don't know what Dylan Thomas is, you know, it's, it's like the whole bloody, um, you know, the whole thing with the Truman Show, or, you know, Baudrillard and the Precession, a simulacrum, and, uh, you know, it's, it's the whole thing of the, the burger that you get in McDonald's isn't the burger that you see advertised in McDonald's? Yeah. So which Dylan Thomas are you getting? Dylan Thomas, the burger, or Dylan Thomas, the picture of the burger?
2: Yes, I am a similar of Dylan Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sats. <laughs> and sats. Uh, I got asked to do this thing in London, and so I was like, oh, I to get drunk or something. You know? and, uh, yeah, I'm pretty up to it. Yeah.
0: How does he, like... I mean, you're a writer, and I'm like, you know what? a practising poet. So where where does he fit into your general kind of um, idea of poetics and poetic practice and your own imagination? Does he, is he an influence?
2: Yeah, I mean, like I started being a poet and I thought I'd, I should read all his stuff now and then obviously one of the first people I came to was Donald Thomas and I found it, I found the extremity of the modernism difficult to absorb and and uh, but I took certain things from it and I was trying to learn how to write. You know, what, what you do is thieve from everyone and you try and s- steal stuff. So he's definitely an influence. But then I, like, rejected him, or so I thought, and moved on to other things. But he does keep cropping up because, like, I'm mixing the Welsh and the English and Looking Hand is coming in. Mm. And he keeps cropping up, like, as an influence on Welsh language poets, mm. like Gay Ross Mm. He was like a King Anthem poet who took his inspiration from Dylan Thomas and Welsh poets and fused them together. Okay. And so, yeah, there's like this thing that he keeps recurring this sort of image of a, a Welsh stereotype. And yeah, and also, yeah, this linguistic uh, impenetrability it reminds me of like Jeremy Prynne and things like that. Yeah. It's just like this, this block of stuff, you know. And then the celebrity is a different issue. I and mean, the, the celebrity, the edge of love, or whatever. And
1: stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas the influence of Dylan Thomas in your writing is the thing that Dylan Thomas is going. I mean, you have the same thing in Swansea Automatic for fusing together terms that are inorganic and organic. You know the chemical terms that you throw into sentences that are total and phrases that are totally organic, uh, that you wouldn't expect to see there. You, you you've got that same shot. At, you know, that's, it's the same thing as Dylan Thompson's chemic blood" that sort of thing. I, that's mm. where I see most. Uh, yeah, he, that is quite apocalyptic. Isn't yeah,
2: it? yeah. And I get that. Very him. apocalyptic. Yeah. Yeah, like he's like like the. Um, Mechanized warfare and all this sort of thing, and then oh. the technology was was becoming evident at the time. Yeah, I do do that, and I mm. get it from print as well. And then I, you know, I throw in like there's a chemistry, and yeah,
1: yes, it's, yes, it's yes. It's, it's
2: absolutely, as a sub yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes.
0: It's, I think one of the general themes that's sort of emerged from this episode is the fact that he is unavoidable, right? He, if you're a poet if you're a critic. If you're Welsh, in general, yes, can't it, be avoided. You cannot avoid the fact that he is there, um, and the fact that he exists and continues to exist, whether yeah. <laughs> we like it or not. I that. mean, when I, when uh, I was
1: writing a PhD, I used to hate people. Right, I used to hate people saying to me, "Oh, what are you doing a PhD on?" I don't mean sort of people in academia, or, you know, just random people that you, saw my mother's friends and things. Oh, what do you write a PhD on, Dylan Thomas? And then they would you'd be there for the next half an hour while somebody came up with all these stories about Auntie Maggie's best friend who went on a coach trip once with his mother and, yeah. you know, they lived the bloke that they knew that did their garden once yeah. did his garden and, uh, so, yeah.
2: King John Lennon for scouts. Yes,
1: exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: All right,
0: you so know,
1: everybody had a vested interest. Yeah, I think so, people do, whether whether yeah. you
0: identify with him and and celebrate him, or whether you you hate resist. him, yeah. yeah, then he's still there as this movable object, I suppose. You know, he's,
1: he's he's the cultural, he's he's the marmite of Welsh cultural signifiers. You love him <laughs> or you hate him, but yeah. you you can't ignore him. That said.
0: Should we be reading Dylan Thomas today? Should we? And and if so, what
2: should we be reading? Any requests?
1: Oh Um Yeah. Uh From Love's First Fever? I like this one because it's a Marxist. It? As a Marxist, it's in the beginning. Oh, yeah, as a Marxist, this has a very uh this has a very left-wing view of um identity and language acquisition. Alright,
0: maybe you can explain that to me uh once we've it's poetry jukebox
2: from now on. <laughs> yeah, in a way, like he was he did it he's like a precursor to a modern poet, isn't he? Because he mm. he really played the market. If you look at the rest of these apocalyptics, who the fuck are they? Nobody knows no. them like and he,
1: Apart from Sylvia Plath and Yeah, there's a
2: couple you've heard of, but there's like loads of people in there, Charles Madge, Roy Fuller We had like 10 books out, and they're just like buried.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Sitwells Sitwells were, you know, apocalyptic poets, but unless you're really into poetry of that period, few people know anything about Sitwells at all, other than William Sitwell is a restaurant critic today. Mm. You know, nobody nobody knows much about the citrus poetry.
2: Yeah, these people had big careers. And yeah, and they had like,
1: huge careers at the time.
2: And it was like a it was a pan British and Irish mm. movement. So maybe he was like he, his like re- reckless ambition was like an attempt attempt to be permanent. And even if it went against the literary side of it, he succeeded, isn't he? Much to everyone's irritation. Perhaps.
1: I I think what what is particularly Welsh whether that's Welsh or Anglo-Welsh or what's particularly of Wales about Dylan Thomas is the interest in language itself. I think if you live in any country where there are two languages, that cannot fail to impact on you at some level.
2: Also, yeah, it makes a fracture because... Yeah. Anglo-Saxon and Welsh, they just don't go together. No, absolutely like not. If, you, if you're talking about Catalan and Castilian or something, they sort of blend in a bit better, or something like um, Quebecois, and they got, like, uh, sort of dialects, but, like, try and mix Welsh and English together. And it's quite a complicated job to get those things to marry together. I know because yeah. I try to...
1: You're always living in, in... If you grow up in Wales, you're always living with you in a way with... Even if you don't speak Welsh, you're always living with the awareness of two languages. Language isn't something that's just accepted. I mean, you only have to drive a car, you drive down the road, and you know, you've know you got road signs in in Welsh and English. So it's something... That's unavoidable. The interest in language is something that's unavoidable, and I think that's true of all. I would say I would stick my neck out and say all Anglo-Welsh writers.
2: It creates like a like a split in your mind, mm. like places like Wrexham where they <laughs> they can't say the place name. down in South Wales, isn't it? Oh, well i will after to Irwin place so Hirwine. Yeah, <laughs> that, I was gonna
0: say that that's the story I always tell is that uh, my grandmother was from Heroine, right? Yeah. But of course everyone from Hirwine calls it Irwin. Yeah. And, but the way she used to say describe where she was from, it I, I speaks to this 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 fracture, right? 'Cause she used to say, Oh, I'm from I'm from Irwin. Oh I mean I mean Heroine properly. Do you know what I mean? So like she was from that place. She was born yeah. there mm-hmm. and like lived within ten miles of that place most mm-hmm. of her life. And yet had this weird ambivalence about how to pronounce the name. Yeah. <laughs> it's
2: like uh, Dylan Dalan, isn't
1: it? Yeah. I
0: want say
2: Dalan, don't It's yeah. Dalan. It's not Dylan. It's not like that. Yeah, yeah. Of course, everyone <laughs> swans it. It's Dylan. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a forever Dylan, you know. And like, places yeah. like Gwerzicht in Wrexham, they call it Gwerzelt. <laughs> <That? laughs> yeah. It's like. Yeah, but you do that. <laughs> the the Gwerzelt's.
1: <laughs> the boozles. Yeah,
2: and they...
1: they good. Stuff, good name for a band, the Wurzeltz.
2: And, and I think... I'm trying to talk about the Wurzeltz there. Yeah. And, it, and people from Wrexham are filled with hate. Um, I think it's because of this, like, split. They just I don't know. They're like, yeah, like you're talking about your relative. Like, they live in this place, but they don't feel, like, owning a shape of it. Mm, yeah. All yeah. of you know. And then there's, like, yeah. this shadow You that you can only have... Uh, then you could only hate, you know, mm. unless you're part of it. Yeah. Uh, what, what else are you going to do? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, there is this weird thing where if you, even though
0: you're from that place, you still feel partly an outsider because you're not really from there because you can't speak the language. I think that's mm-hmm. that's an extreme view, but I think it's part of, it's the, the one, one of the weird things that, that makes up, like, the ambivalence of being Welsh, mm. I think, or at least English speaking Welsh. Yeah.
2: Cause I always perform Welsh wherever I go, and then like London, they think it's brilliant. Oh, fucking amazing! Lord of the Rings, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> In Wales, like you get this massive guilt, like, and they start taking the piss at you, it goes down like shit. You know? Yeah,
1: I think that there is part of you if you don't speak Welsh. I, I don't, to my shame, I don't speak Welsh. I want to learn Welsh. Yeah, um, everyone
2: does.
1: Exactly! Everybody wants to everybody wants Why to learn. Why don't well. you fucking do it? <laughs> Why don't you fucking teach me? Alright! <laughs> uh, but do you, know, do, you know, do you know what I mean? It, it's sort of um No, to
2: be fair like if I if I hadn't been taught in school I would have read that. the know for sure. Oh I
1: dropped out to do Spanish, sir. Oh yeah. <laughs> Mind you, I, I dropped computer science to do Latin Because I thought the computers were never going to take off And it was just a fad
2: Got uh, tablets, but not, not of that sort yeah. <laughs> I thought we would all be masons yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to do like a message for you Where's the chisel? Yeah. <laughs> from love's first fever to her plague From the soft second And to the hollow minute of the womb from the unfolding of the scissored core, the time for breasts and the green apron age, when no mouth stirred about the hanging famine. All world was one, one windy nothing. My world was christened in a stream of milk, and earth and sky were as one airy hill. The sun and moon shed one white light. Just one stanza for that and
1: discuss. it's all about, about unities and it? it's about how the world is one before it's broken up into language it's language that creates divisions. language through language that we have ideology it's through language that we're interpolated first into society as as subjects if you go on to the next first from the first declension of the flesh I will uh, I learned man's tongue to twist and shape so
2: it's like unified as a that's, that's the signified. entrance. Of,
1: that's the entrance of language, and from the first declension of the flesh,
2: and from the first declension of the flesh, I learnt man's tongue to twist the shapes of thoughts into mm. the stony idiom of the brain, to shade and knit anew the patch of words left by the dead, who, in their moonless acre, need no words' warmth. The root of tongues ends. In a spent-out cancer, that but a name, where maggots have their X.
1: And that's all about language and ideology.
2: Mm. Explain.
1: From the first declension of the flesh, Mm. right, he's using um, a grammatical term, decline, right? We decline, we fall into language, right? So we cast into language, we become subjects, we learn... Through the patterns of language, we learn who we are, and this language is left by generations before us. So we're born into culture, we're born into a pre-existing culture, but that is through the acquisition of language, not through psychosexual, you know, through the transversing of psychosexual stages. You know, psychologically. So this is very much something that wasn't uh, this is very much something that's post-structuralist, very much part of um the very much part of the left bank, nineteen
0: sixty-eight. The as in it's it's in this we are inescapably social beings because we must use language. We must use language we can't escape. And it. Think with.
1: Yes.
2: It's interesting to think is that de- decline is like a more mass of mat- yeah. change of a verb. Um First which declension
1: nouns, second declension nouns, yeah.
2: Which is like a feature that is l- largely absent from English. English. It's been taken out, mm. whereas Welsh is still a, yeah. a, a decline. It's in
1: doing that. lots and lots of different things at the same time, that, that yeah, passage. I mean,
2: in, in Welsh, you can say something very succinctly, mm. because it's like in French or, or Latin, you know, you mm. a very brief motto, you know, but it's got context of it gives you the person the the uh, the mood and the action yeah. of the verb, which you do whereas in English it's like set, isn't it? So it's the same.
1: Absolutely, and this is typical. Sometimes he moves in lots and lots of ways at the same time. You know, if there's a lyric narrative at all underneath all of that, he's talking about the way that we acquire language, and we become linguistic beings. Um, and inherit language from the generations before, and we use that to twist the shape of... Twisting the shape of thought is brilliant, isn't it? Twist the shape of thought. How we make things real. We make things through language. And that's a very, very... um, That's very much of sort of very left-wing theorists like Julie Kristeva, you know, twisting and shaping language into our own meaning. I
2: learnt the verbs of will and had my secret, the code of night tapped on my tongue. What had been, one was many, sounding minded. One womb, one mind, spewed out the matter. One breast gave suck the fever's issue. From the divorcing sky, I learnt the double, the two-framed globe that spun into the score. A million minds gave suck to each bud. As forks, my eye, youth did condense the tears of spring, dissolving in summer. One, the hundred seasons, one sun, one manner, warmed and fed. Yeah, it's quite. I
0: mean, read that against the popular consensus around Dylan Thomas, <laughs> they don't quite match. Are they? No, because often these read as and celebrated as kind of, especially the later poetry. A very nostalgic yeah. writer, you know, writing about...
1: this coffee table books, aren't there? Yeah. You know, it's, it's this idea of cottage industry that's grown up around him.
0: Yeah. But at the same time, really, what he was probably interested in was, I mean, yeah, some of the more fundamental relationships between language and society and self mm. from these pretty complex ruminations on this stuff. Mm. Um. Which you know, it, again, just feeds into just how complex a figure it is, I suppose. And I mean, it, clearly, the argument here is that he is a um, he's a socialist and a so you know a social and a political writer as mm. much as anything else.
1: Because he's, he's challenging the very structures along, which the very thing that sustains and perpetuates our society, mm. the thing that sustains and perpetuates ideology. Mm. And Dylan Thomas is pushing those very structures that, you know, at base level, he's pushing that apart.
0: But it's significant, isn't it, that that is not the way he's read. Absolutely. <laughs> that, is not, that is not the image of Dylan Thomas that no. is, the, is the dominant one, no. you know. I mean, the dominant is what? Is Under Milk Woods And Under Hill
1: Milk Milkwood and... Child's Christmas in Wales. Yeah. Fern Hill.
0: I mean, admittedly, Charles Christmas in Wales is somewhat easier to read than <laughs> <Yeah>. some more <laughs> mystifying
2: uh, series of yeah, yeah. and uh, and that stuff has value as well. I
1: think yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not my favourite, but yes, it has value. Mm. You know, personally, of... I'm i I like the impenetrability. I like the love early it.
2: work. Yeah, we love you it. love penetrating the impenetrable.
1: Yes. Yes, it's a bit like
2: uh it's a bit like bit one Chumbawamba or whatever they do that yeah kind fucking of song, yeah, and then everybody ignores all their folk stuff,
0: yeah,
1: well,
2: there we go this is I pop- didn't, I didn't know this is Chumba popular culture from the nineties to uh <laughs> <access> <laughs> that part of the audience, yeah, but yeah. like yeah. that's what happens there you, know, you get one thing that intersects with something more like yeah easily so I suppose
0: that was. Maybe part of his genius was that he you know he was able to you know, traverse the different, these different genres and forms, so he was writing poetry but also prose, short stories, narrative fiction
1: but the um, same thing happens with the short, with the stories because the later stuff is accessible, hmm. but then you've got like these very surreal early stories of the Jarvis Valley, yeah, and they are dark. Mm. I mean, I like dark, but these are dark. Mm. These are really dark. You know, you've got burned babies and incest and Unitarian preachers and, you know, it's all going on. Very crowded Evans. Very crowded Evans and very much, you know, there's this little Frankenstein thing of the, you know, the bloody grafting bodies onto other bodies and chicken heads onto cats and... You know, and, uh, yeah, that stuff's really Rather cool. That stuff in uh, rural shit. <laughs> yeah!
2: Snowball <laughs> shit for Cladachan. <laughs>
1: stuff that happens north of Ponte services. <laughs> you should
2: fucking see Gwyneth. Yeah. yeah. So there's the of Frankenstein babies. Loads. Let's not go there. Did uh, Dylan Thomas ever write anything about his poetics? Because it seems like... Yeah. He, yeah. yeah,
1: Yeah.
2: Does he talk about, like, almost post stretch things, is yeah. he?
0: There's this good quote. Maybe you can read this quote, actually, yeah, from a letter from the late 30s. Uh, where somebody's asked him about the politics of his writing basically and how that relates to his poetics. He Thomas basically says in the letter he is extremely sociable, right? Um, and maybe if you read that's this section here, just to give a sense of
2: what he goes on to say. A squirrel stumbling, at least of equal importance, as Hitler's invasions, murder in Spain, the Garbo, Strokovsky, romance, royalty, Horlicks, Linsklau, pinch disasters, John Lewis, wicked capitalists, saintly communist democracy, the ashes, the Church of England, birth control, Yeats's voice, the machines of the world I've taken revolving, Our baby, weather, government, football, youth... And age, speed, lipstick and small tyrannies mean tests the fascist anger, the daily momentary lightnings, eruptions, farts, damp squibs, barrel organs, tin whistles, howitzers, tiny death rattles, volcanic whimpers of the world I eat, drink, love, work, hate and delight in.
1: Thomas worked always on on a really profound belief that everything was interconnected. The connection of all things very um it goes further than any sort of simple pantheism it's um
2: Is it like Jungianism?
1: it goes further than that even mm. um
2: hey,
1: yeah very much um you know, the whole idea of a web of connections, you know, I mean, we know now that, you know, there's the whole thing of the butterfly flaps its wings in mm. the Philippines and then there'll be a hurricane somewhere else in the, yeah.
2: Chaos.
1: Yeah, yeah. Dylan Thomas was writing about that stuff in the 30s. Oh, the, that was his whole basic... The
2: mycelium or the rhizome.
1: Yeah, definitely anticipating the uh, rhizomes before um, Deleuze and Guitaria.
0: Rhizomes, good, well, I think we've covered quite a bit of ground and underneath the ground yeah in uh in this, so thank you both so much for for uh, having this uh for doing this episode um it was, I, it was a ball. as per tradition, have you got any beefs or shout outs that you wanna uh throw out there
1: pull up a stool, where would you like me to begin? I've always got beefs for lots of people, um, my main one at the moment is Kima, okay, yeah, good yeah, yeah. beef any shout outs
2: um. Mm-hmm. Well no, not really.
1: No. Just just lots of beefs, yeah. Just plenty of beefs. Just plenty of beefs, beefs shout outs. No, oh good. give a shout out to Alan. Give a shout out to my long suffering partner Alan who's always been very, very supportive in my writing, and who's hiding at the moment in the other room, trying to be as silent as possible while we're recording this.
2: I'm going beefs I love everyone in the world. Bollocks uh, no, I'm, I'm trying to suppress my uh, malicious so i have just embrace it it embrace embrace
1: it it, embrace it let it let it play
2: no I can't I'll go too far go on I'm just I'll just I'll just hand over to the fetus Uh, no just leave it alright no beef so shoutouts no neither one neither one I'm a Buddhist now Um,
0: are you?
1: no
2: alright good
0: yeah my beef my my beef and shoutout both go to Dylan Thomas
2: yeah that's the one Mm.
0: Yeah. For okay. me. All right. Um Dan and Nath and Steph couldn't be here today because as I've said in previous episodes they don't read books.
2: <laughs> so they fucking hate poetry. <laughs> <post>. Personal <laughs>
0: communication. <laughs> yeah. But um I'm sure you'll be hearing from them very soon. So thanks everyone. See you soon. Thank
2: you. Bye. Bye. Bye.
3: And someone had left out the word dialectic. Yeah, well, you to do that it. had to come somewhere. Well, <laughs> I made, well, I may as well bring it in, you know First of all, anyway, I, I first of all, it always sounds as though one's got several other things to say, but I haven't really because the first once I've spoken what I've first of all got to say, I haven't anything yes. more to say, but Well, starting at the alphabet from A to A. I think a, pa- a symposium panel is the most curious, as you might notice, thing. We're only pretending to be now at our conversational ease. <laughs> Though we seem to be saying what, what we think, we're only, of course, thinking towards what we're saying, are not we? But I think... I think one of, one of, one of the troubles about this, if it is a trouble, is that that we're talking about the, the poetic film, whatever that might be, as though though it were, as though it were a, a brand new thing and we were the first people to be talking about it. The earliest film I ever saw was a poetic film. I don't know what it was, it might have been The Street or Atlantide or Metropolis. It was before the, the the big cinema interests had got hold of the little cinemas. And so all sorts of films could be seen in small suburban cinemas and small provincial towns in far off unlikely countries like Wales. But th- those, those seem to me in, in, in essence to be, to be poetical films, and now we're trying to split, split the poetry from, from the films again and, and separate them. I think there was a poetic cinema, there might be, but what too many of us, I'm not specifically saying people here, but also probably, or perhaps people in the audience, is that the avant-garde seems to be retrogressive. That doesn't start someone talking, I don't know what to.